Good morning. Hebrews chapter 2. It's where you can be turning in your Bibles this morning. We'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. We have uh, several uh, family and friends visiting, uh, worshiping with us this morning. Uh, if that's you, you should know that what we're doing in the month of December is we've been walking through this chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, because of the very... Uh, particularly powerful way that this chapter answers the question for us, why the incarnation? Why was it necessary that God would come and take on flesh and become man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? So as we've walked through this chapter, we've been seeing a number of answers to that question, in fact. Uh, and this morning, we add verses 14 to 16 to this study. Uh, how do these particular verses add to our understanding of the need for the Incarnation? Of course, if we were to try, it would be impossible to rank by significance the answers that we're seeing in this chapter. Everything that we're hearing about the necessity of the Incarnation is precious to us and is of eternal significance for us. That said, I am grateful. Uh, in the providence of God that on this Sunday morning before Christmas Day that we come to the particular truths that we come to here in verses 14 to 16. In terms of our time this morning, I'll leave it to you to decide if we're seeing three answers to this why question, uh, or if maybe we're seeing one answer with three parts to it. It may well be that, but we'll structure our time this morning around the number three. So here are the things that we're going to see as we come to God's word this morning. We're going to see first that Christ came in the flesh because flesh and blood are essential to our nature. That first point will be different than the other two because what we're really hearing in verse 14 as we look at that is we're hearing truths about ourselves. There are certain realities about what it is to be human that help us to answer the question of why the incarnation is necessary. So that's the first thing that we'll see. Secondly, we'll see that Christ came in the flesh to absorb sin's accusations against us by joining himself to us. Third and finally then, we'll see that Christ came in the flesh to rescue the offspring of Abraham. That's how he's going to put it at the end of verse 16. So Hebrews 2 verses 14 to 16, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? The author of this letter continues in this way. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Can you tell just in seeing that, just in hearing it, what a passage, what a rich text we have in front of us, these things that are said 
in these three short verses. It really is amazing. Let's begin at the beginning. The first thing that we, we need to see as we're walking through this is that Christ came in the flesh because flesh and blood are essential to our nature. This is something that's maybe especially worth emphasizing and taking note of because we do live in a time where we're accustomed to people not thinking and talking this way about human beings. And so we do well to take a note from the way we are described here in verse 14. It is interesting and it's actually instructive as we read there about ourselves. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. When he speaks of this people, these children, sharing in flesh and blood, he is describing what they all hold in common. In fact, what we would say is he's describing something of their very nature. They are a people that, quote, share in flesh and blood. This is who they are. We're seeing a statement here that informs us about what it means to be human. What the Bible tells you about your nature is that your embodiment, your being in a body, is a crucial aspect of it. Your body is the material aspect of your human nature. Think of what we see all the way at the beginning in the book of Genesis. The way that God created Adam was by joining together a physical aspect, forming from the dust of the ground, to a spiritual aspect as he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We see them both in Genesis 2.7. This is human nature. It is inextricable from your bodily existence. This is a Christian notion that stands in competition with other notions of what it means to be us. It stands against more pagan and sometimes Gnostic notions. Uh, have you ever heard this kind of thing? The notion that you... I mean, the real you is inside this body of yours uh, and that it, you are freed upon death. The Christian faith challenges that line of thinking directly. What is so terrible about death is that at death, what is by nature joined together becomes separated. As our bodies go into the ground to await their resurrection, and our spirit, if we belong to the Lord, if we are known by him, is guarded by God into that day. Even if we do not know the Lord, our spirit is preserved, is held until the resurrection can take place and judgment can occur against humans, body and soul united. Our bodies are not incidental to our existence. They are an aspect of our very nature. And we're hearing ourselves be spoken of like that here in verse 14. One way that this has been put at times to make the point more strongly, and I think this does put it very strongly, I remember the first time I heard someone say this, and I really stopped and chewed on it for a bit. Have you ever heard a statement like this? You don't have a body, you are your body. To be sure, you are more than just your body, but flesh and blood, as it's described here in verse 14, is shorthand for the reality that there is an inescapable physical aspect to human nature. And this, by the way, is why God's word makes so much of the fact that our salvation 
is not finished until the resurrection. It's only when body and spirit are rescued, redeemed, and reunited that God's saving work for his people is complete. You may have heard the Latin phrase, ordo salutis. This is the order of salvation that God's word describes to us. The last step in the order of salvation is glorification. And a glorified human is by definition embodied. Now, what we find in verse 14 is a shorthand statement to describe the fact that the eternal Son of God took to himself a true human nature. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, as he walked the earth, and Jesus Christ of Nazareth, as he sits now bodily enthroned in heaven, that man was not and is not wearing a mask. He is not wearing a costume. The divine person of Jesus has taken to himself a human nature in the incarnation. So that when we recite, as we will this evening in our Christmas Eve service, when we recite the Nicene Creed, we confess that in the incarnation, the Son of God became man. And we actually mean that. To be human is to share in flesh and blood. And therefore, we see this first part of the answer this morning out of verse 14. Why did Christ come in the flesh? God took on flesh and blood because flesh and blood are essential to our nature as humans. If he is to be one of us, if he is to represent us in the ways we've seen in the past weeks, he must take on flesh and blood. Now, the second thing that we see this morning spans both verses 14 and 15. And this second thing is easily the central message of our text this morning. We'll spend the majority of our time in this second reality. And I want to state it for us as we're starting to see it, uh, using language that we don't find in the text. But I think this does well in summing up what we're going to see. So maybe let your eyes glance from verse 14 to verse 15 as I say this and see if you can tell where we're going. You may not be able to right away, and we'll spend some time walking through how this is worded. But here's how I want to express this second point. What we see here this morning is that Christ Jesus took on flesh because in joining himself to us, he was able to absorb every accusation against us. Let's start by looking at this structure of verses 14 and 15. It's just important to be able to see how this breaks down. Uh, Let's read verse 14 until we come to the word might. I'm reading from the ESV, and if you're following with me in there, and in others as well, you'll see the word might. Verse 14 begins like this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might... Already he's made, in what we've just read, a profound declaration. Jesus partook of the same things, he partook of flesh and blood, it says so that through death he might do a thing. It's almost in passing in the sentence that Hebrews tells us that Jesus took on flesh for the express purpose of then being able to die. 
he partook of the same things so that now that he is in flesh and blood, he might die. And in dying, he might do a thing that we haven't come to yet. Mark 10, 45, he says this, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Now, that sentence in Mark has its own ending where it explains the purpose of his dying. It ends like this, uh, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how that ends. But here in Hebrews 2.14, when we stopped at the word might, he was just about to tell us what that death would accomplish, wasn't he? So that through death he might do something. Now look carefully because we need to notice that there are two parts to the rest of that sentence. And they span verses 14 and 15. The next word in verse 14 is the first of those two things. It's the word destroy. He says that through death he might destroy. And then notice that the first two words of verse 15 give the second part. Where it says, and deliver. So what we're reading is, he came that through death he might destroy and deliver. Now, do those sound like complete opposites to you? They sound like opposites to me. If you're going to deliver a thing, what you're not going to do is destroy it, right? Destroy and deliver uh, are two very different things. And certainly you can see just by reading, that those two verbs are aimed at two different objects. The destruction is aimed at the devil, end of verse 14, and the deliverance is aimed at someone else. So in that way, we can immediately see that at least these may be two sides of the same coin, a destruction and a deliverance. But I want to argue this morning that those two ideas are actually even closer together than that. And what we're reading here are not just two sides of the same coin. We are describing the same thing that Christ has done in taking on flesh and in dying. Let's take them one at a time. The first that we're told of is that in his death, Jesus destroyed the devil. That's what it says. In order to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, even saying it that way probably starts creating a question in our heads, doesn't it? Because if you're like me, when I hear the word destroy, I immediately assume a particular thing. I think of something like kill or annihilate. Those are the things that I'm thinking when I hear the word destroy. If I'm thinking that way, I know right away that I've got something wrong here. Because this is describing what happened at the death of our Lord. And at Jesus' death on the cross, Satan was neither killed nor annihilated was he? I'll tell you, as I, as I looked at this and thought about this this last week, I developed stronger and stronger negative feelings about the choice of word here that the ESV makes when it cho chooses to put this with the word destroy. I think that word choice is needlessly confusing, choosing to translate the verb here as destroy. This word can mean something like what we think of as destroy, but much more often it means something more like to strip a thing of its power, to deprive it, to nullify it, to render it uh, powerless. That's what this word means most of the time as it appears. 
Which is why in this verse, the New American Standard Bible, the Legacy Standard Bible, both render this here uh, in this way, that through death he might render powerless the devil. The NIV says that by his death he might break the power of the devil. This verb is used in several other places where even in the ESV we find words like abolish, nullify, make of no effect, and render powerless. Now, how do we make a decision about how we translate things? Of course, the way you do that is you look at the idea that, this, that the sentence is bringing across. So what is verse 14 telling us that Jesus did to Satan by his death, by Jesus' death? Notice how Satan is specifically described here. And through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 14 is speaking of, of Satan in the capacity he occupies in this earth and the power that he holds. And it's telling us that he was stripped of his power at the death of our Lord. He was deprived of that power. When he says what we read here in the ESV as uh, that he might destroy the devil, this author is telling us exactly the same thing that Paul was recounting in Colossians 2.15. When Paul said this, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He has disarmed Satan. The Son of God came in the flesh, entering the human race, and lived a perfect human life of obedience and submission to the Father, earning, achieving what we saw last week as he became qualified to successfully represent a people that God had given him and to make an offering for their sin that was acceptable to God. And my friends, when that sin was atoned for at the cross, Satan's power over that people was completely and utterly broken. It is as amazing as it is a glorious thing to consider. And it actually gives us an opportunity to understand the nature of Satan's power in this world. What does it say about the power that Satan has? That it can be called here, quote, the power of death. The one having the power of death. What does that say about his power? What does it say that Colossians 2.15 can tell us that the cross disarmed him? What are we finding about the power of our great enemy. What we're discovering is that Satan's power is in actuality completely wrapped up in the combination of two words, death and sin. Would you chase this with me for just a moment? Let's think about what the Bible tells us. I'm going to read some things to you and have you look with me at some other things. Think about what the Bible tells us about the relationship between death and sin. We know, for example, that Romans 5.12 tells us that sin entered the world through Adam. And then, then it says, and death through sin. So when Adam rebelled against his maker, sin entered the world. And by virtue of that entrance into the world, death entered the world. Already there it's speaking about a connection, a relationship between death and sin. Then we read something else. 
in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Would you turn over with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. Let me read verses 56 and 57. And especially I'm reading this and having you see it (laughs) simply for the sake of verse 56. There are two statements that Paul makes there. that certainly require more time than we're going to give it to fully, completely understand it. But it's so relevant to what we're seeing here in Hebrews 2 this morning that we need to consider this. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is sin the sting of death. And for goodness sakes, how is the law the power of sin? The law is of God. The law reflects the very character of God. What can Paul mean when he says that the law is the power of sin? These things are true, aren't they? God has given them to us. Whatever they mean is true. But what do they mean? I thought the best way to get at this with the time that we have this morning is simply to share with you something that I read from a man named Leon Morris, excellent New Testament commentator. Listen to what he says here in reference to verse 56. He says, it is not death in itself that is harmful. It is that death that is the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, that matters. Death considered simply as the passing out of life into the immediate presence of the Lord, is a gain, not a loss. Philippians 1. Where sin is pardoned, death has no sting. It is quite another matter. It is quite another matter where sin has not been dealt with. There, death is a virulent antagonist. The sting is not in death, it is in sin. And sin has an unexpected ally and source of power, the law. The law is divine in origin, and Paul can speak of the commandment as holy, righteous, and good, Romans 7.12. But it is quite unable to bring people to salvation, and indeed by setting before us the standard we ought to reach and never do, it becomes sin's stronghold. It makes sinners of us all. It condemns us all. Now, with this verse, 1556, still in front of you, let me reread to you the verse of our, the next verse in our text, verse 15. So hear this next verse in our passage while you're looking at verse 56. We've already seen this morning that by his death, Jesus destroyed the devil And we've seen that by destroy, he means that Satan has been utterly disarmed, rendered powerless in terms of this power that he has received. Here's how verse 15 continues the thought. It's continuing to answer the question of the effect of Christ's death, that he might destroy. And then in verse 15, we read this, and that he might deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. 
What you've got there in front of you in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 is so helpful because what it tells us is this, that when Hebrews 2.15 talks about the enslaving power of death, excuse me, the enslaving fear of death, it's not simply talking about that natural fear we all experience at the notion of death. That is not the powerful fear that he's speaking of. That fear is really, what is that fear that we all feel as we think of death, as we get closer to death? Isn't that the fear? Isn't that a number of fears? The fear of the unknown. I'm about to go through something that I have have no idea what it's like. I'm afraid of the unknown. It's fear of immediate significant change and the possible impacts that that might have. That fear that we all experience is its own thing, to be sure, isn't it? It's real, it's terribly significant, and it's something that that we can be informed in as we consider this passage. But the fear that verse 15 describes rescue from, Jesus died to deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. That fear that he's speaking of comes from the verse 14 reality about death's power to bring us immediately into righteous judgment. Romans 1.23, we know instinctively that our sins are worthy of death. And the unbelieving life is a lifetime of running from that in terror. A lifetime of desperate self-justification and excuse-making. And where that won't work, a lifetime of desperate distraction. From this enslaving fear, the death of Jesus has set us free. So we find two things then by factoring in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. We find, number one, that sin is what gives death its sting. And we find, secondly, that sin's power is wrapped up in the reality of us being susceptible to accusation before God's throne. In other words, sin has power over us because it causes us to be rightly accused before God. When I have sinned against God, accusations brought against me to the throne of God are right. They are justified. And that is a fearful thing indeed, isn't it? To fall into the hands of an angry God. Death has been an instrument in Satan's hands in multiple ways then. His first temptation of our race led to death. Through Adam's fall came death. And Satan's accusations, or we could say the legitimacy of his accusations against us before God, condemned us to death. I remember hearing once John Piper say it very powerfully when he said the only weapon Satan ever had was unforgiven sin with which to accuse us. Now we're coming, now as we're thinking about this, we're coming into verse 15 of our text. We haven't turned back there yet. On your way back there, would you go the wrong direction? Would you make one little stop in Revelation chapter 12? Then we'll come back to our text.
Revelation chapter 12, find verse 9. I'll begin reading there. I bring us here for one reason. Listen to the description that is given of this Satan. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Who is this ancient serpent? He is the deceiver of the world, it says. By his deceptions, did the rulers of the world, Adam and Eve, fall from grace? And in his fall, the fall of this ancient serpent, this one who was called the devil and Satan, in his fall, it says, salvation has come because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down whose activity is described as, quote, accusing them day and night before our God. My friends, who is he accusing? Notice the picture is of Satan standing before the throne of God, railing, bringing accusations against men and women, sinful men and women, and by implication, bringing accusations of injustice against God. It's a crazy thing for us to think about what we see here. Satan's accusations go something like this. These people have sinned and deserve judgment for that sin, and you aren't condemning them. That's not the kind of argument we're accustomed to imagining in Satan's mouth. Yet there he is. John says he is the accuser of our brothers. That accuser has been thrown down. The one who accuses them day and night before our God. My friends, he is not at all objecting to the way God is treating unbelievers. He is very fine with the way God is treating unbelievers. They stand condemned by God for their sin, and Satan loves to see God's image bearers condemned. Satan is objecting to the mercy, to the grace that God is showing his people. Since Adam and Eve, there has been a people putting their faith in God's promises, and on the basis of their faith being justified before God's throne. Every one of them, sinners, generation after generation, living, coming to faith in God's promises, dying, and being justified by God, not condemned. And Satan has railed against them. We read this fascinating statement from Paul in Romans 3.25 about the cross. Paul describes the death of Christ and how his blood satisfied the just requirements of God's law. And then Paul says this. He says, this was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what was accomplished at the cross. Now, come back to Hebrews chapter 2. 
Let's take these things into what we're seeing here. We've seen verse 14, with his death, Jesus has rendered powerless the one who has held the power of death. Now we have seen that that power of death held in his hands was tantamount to his accusations. Those for whom death has come must receive condemnation. Thus he has accused God's people. And verse 14 tells us that that accuser of God's people has been stripped of his place. That's what's meant here in verse 14 with the word destroy. We know Satan is not yet cast into the eternal fire that has been prepared for him and his angels. But he has been rendered powerless in this way. He has been triumphed over. Mark 3.27, the strong man has been bound as the sins of God's forgiven people were nailed to the cross. Verse 14 speaks to us also of death. We know very well that death is not yet put to death either. That day is coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That day has not come yet, but death has had its stinger plucked out for this people that is being spoken of. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, now as we come back to Hebrews 2 and verse 15, we should be able to see how, as it transitions from destroy to deliver, we should be able to see that we're not undergoing a change of subject here. He said that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. The very way in which Satan is said to be destroyed, to be stripped of his power that he held in his hands in reference to our death, that is the way in which we have been delivered. It's not speaking of a delivery from everything, from every, every trial, every bit of suffering. It's this delivery of a people who had been subject to lifelong slavery through fear of death. Peter O'Brien summed this all up very well. He said this, men and women are still subject to death itself, but Christ by his death has removed its terrors. His exaltation confirms his victory and opens up the way of access to God that renders death and the fear it inspires irrelevant. Since death cannot separate Christ's people from God's love, it can no longer be held over our heads as a means of intimidation. If this bondage to the fear of death had been particularly acute for the listeners of this pastoral word, then for them to know that Satan's ability to wield the power of death over them has been broken was good news indeed. My friends, it was good news for them. It is good news for us. What a fascinating thought for those of us, all of us in here who know the fear that the notion of death inspires in us. What a fascinating notion to hear it said that way. That we will find that the, any remaining fear we experience emotionally in reference to death has in fact been made irrelevant. We will all come to that terrifying moment 
And in the next instant, we will realize, oh, there was nothing to fear after all. Oh, there would have been. Oh, there should be. But those reasons for life-paralyzing fear, they went away the instant that my Lord satisfied God's wrath that death was supposed to signify. And say, what we're finding this morning, this can start to sound like an Easter sermon, can't it? But what we're finding this morning is that this, in fact, was the reason that he came and took on flesh. It's the reason that his death is so significant to us, dying a physical death. Because in so doing, he has identified himself with us. And by leading us and representing us, he has absorbed for his people every accusation that could be made. We come then to our third and final emphasis this morning, and this is so important that we would not end without this. We've said so much about the freedom from the fear of death, about death losing its sting. But what verse 16 adds to this picture is absolutely crucial for us. What we find in verse 16 is this, Christ came in the flesh to rescue the offspring of Abraham. Notice again verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Think about what we've said so far. Uh, against whose treatment was Satan railing in verse 14? Not against the condemnation received by unbelievers, but against the grace received by those whose faith is in the saving promises of God. Who has been delivered from the sting of death in verse 15? My friends, all have not been delivered from that sting of death. Those who continue in their rebellion against God have not been delivered from the sting of death. But those for whom Christ has died and those to whom eternal life has come, they have been delivered. The way verse 16 puts it is as we've seen. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It is the second of the bookends in these verses that tell us who all of this is being done for. Here in 16, he calls them the offspring of Abraham. Back in verse 14, he had called them the children, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Who is this children? You just mentioned children the verse before that. It shouldn't be hard for us to look back one verse and understand the point that he's making. He just spoke in verse, th verse 13 of, quote, the children who God has given me. Bookends explaining for whom all of this is being done. In verse 16, he ends it in this way by naming the group within the fallen human race whom God has willed to help. And he calls them the offspring of Abraham. Would you notice with me two realizations? with the rest of our time this morning, that this verse brings to us. The first is this. Do you see, because of the comparison he's making with angels, do you see that this is help 
that God was not required to give. Exhibit A of God's freedom to act in this way is the angelic race. There's been a lot in the news lately about aliens. You do realize that there are aliens, don't you? There is an entire race of creatures that are not earthbound, that are not human, and that have their own nature. We call them angels. The word angel comes from the Greek word for messenger because God has created them for their own particular purpose. He's created them to be his servants, and in particular to serve him in reference to what he is doing on this planet with a race of people called humans. They are servants. And it's significant, too, that they are not made as image bearers of God, as humanity is. That race of creature has also had its own kind of fall. Now, unlike us, God has not chosen to deal with them through a representative head. When Satan fell, every single angel, every single member of that race did not fall with them. But all those who joined Satan in his rebellion fell with him and are under judgment. And to this day, they are awaiting that judgment, which will happen on the last day, and they know it. The demon-possessed man cries out to Jesus before he's exorcised. You have not come to torment us before the time, have you? They know that they are under judgment and that that day is coming. And of that group, which we call demons, of that group of fallen angels, God has chosen to pardon none of them. He has not extended to angels the help he extended to us. What does that tell us? It tells us that God is under no obligation to extend his merciful saving grace. That's the first thing to be very clear from, verse 16. The second thing is that just as this free act of grace from God is not extended to angels, neither is it extended indiscriminately to the entire human race. What does verse 16 say? He helps the offspring of Abraham. Notice the way that that zeroes in past Adam and Eve, past an entire realm of humanity, and chooses to focus its help on a particular family. makes it abundantly clear, and very quickly, it had better be a matter of obsessive attention to every member of the wide human race. How, oh how, can I become adopted into that family? Is there any way possible that I might come to belong to that family, to the family that Abraham belonged to? And did you know the Bible answers that question? <laughs> In Galatians 3, starting at verse 5, we read this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And that chapter in Galatians ends with a conclusion in verse 29. He ends this way, and if you belong to Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Those who are of the faith of Abraham are sons of Abraham. And that's the case, not by a direct line, but actually by an indirect line. It's the case because by our faith, we are united to Jesus, who, the one who is the true promised seed of Abraham. Galatians makes that abundantly clear, that the promise given to Abraham was given to him and his seed, singular, Jesus Christ. If I am to be wrapped up in that promise and in all of those benefits and blessings, I must be joined to Christ. Only by union with Christ am I in any way joined to the family of Abraham. How do we come to receive this help, this grace by which we come to be called children of the living God? We don't receive it by being born into the right family. We receive it by the free act of God's grace, whereby he unites us to Christ by faith. And in living by that faith, we are made, quote, the offspring, plural, of Abraham, by virtue of our union with the offspring, singular, of Abraham, Jesus Christ himself. My friends, what have we seen here in verses 14 to 16? Three small verses, and yet so much about what God has done in Christ to rescue his children, to rescue his people. We've seen God complete the eternal plan of redemption to bring a people, as Ephesians 1.4 describes them, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, to bring that people into forgiveness, restoration, and glory. We've seen how this displays the perfections of God's mercy and grace as he freely chose to reach out in love and take hold of these children whom he has willed to love. And we've seen that in order to do all of this, Christ took on flesh. He came and was born so that having earned all righteousness through a perfect life, he might then die. And in so doing, he might take those whom he has been joined to and absorb every accusation, every condemnation that might be railed against them for their sins. As he bore their iniquities at the cross, he took on their flesh that he might die in their place. And we've seen that when he did that, that for that people, death itself was forever defanged. It has no sting any longer. God's people, those who have run to Christ Jesus for life, those of whom Romans 8.1 speaks when it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's people will all most certainly feel fear as we draw near to our own death in this life. But each and every one of them will suddenly recognize in the moments thereafter that Paul was right all along. And that because our debt has been paid, there was in fact nothing at all to be afraid of. Truly, death has come to be what Paul said it was. It has come to be gain 
for us now. Because all it does now is bring us into the loving presence of our Father. We might end where we began when Blake read to us from Galatians chapter 3 this morning. My hope is that now that we've seen this in these verses, we can now tell that the message of Hebrews 2.14 that we've walked through is Paul's message in Galatians 3.13 and 14, where he said this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the glory that we celebrate in this season. Would you pray with me? Father, cause your people this morning to bow low before your word. to tremble in complete submission. Lord, we do confess because of what you have revealed to us and the life you have breathed into us that your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, for what we see in places like this that we have gone this morning. Thank you for leading us to these, to these realities, to these promises, that if our trust is in your Son and him alone, we have nothing to fear. There was a fearful thing indeed, fearful enough to bring great strife and anxiety to our Lord in that garden before the crucifixion. What a thing to think that this, that we are celebrating freedom from. It is the thing that he was voluntarily walking into to drink in our stead. Lord, our prayer is that as we go through our day today and we come to tomorrow and we are with our families celebrating in this special way the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that our minds would be brought to the whole of it, not just to the sweet baby, but to the, to the amazing reality of what he was coming to do, that he was coming to die the death that we deserve. We thank you for our Lord, for our Savior this morning. We thank you for your perfect, eternal plan, the covenant of redemption, whereby the triune God willed to put his glory on display by saving a people. What a thing, Father. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.